At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, a look at a new push for renter-friendly laws in Bay Area cities. This week, Antioch in East Contra Costa County approved capping yearly rent increases by many landlords at 3%. The narrow vote made Antioch only the latest city in the region to pursue stronger rent protections amid the state's crises of affordable housing and homelessness, and only the latest city to frustrate landlords. Some of them say their livelihoods are being threatened by regulations that limit what they charge and whether they can evict a tenant. In some places, property owners are taking those complaints to court. Chronicle reporter Lauren Hepler is here. She writes about housing and California's housing crisis. Lauren, thanks for joining me. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Lauren, why now? Why are we seeing moves to enact rental protections at this time? There's really multiple things happening at once. So one big one is kind of the sprawl of unaffordability that we've seen in recent years. Like, yes, it's no secret that San Francisco is really expensive. Oakland has been expensive for renters for a long time. But now we're seeing these debates move to, like you said, Antioch, to Richmond, to other cities all around the region. And with that, activism is also moving. So you've got more tenant organizers now in these places where the rents are an increasing concern for low-income residents in particular. And then you've also just got kind of the really heightened economic pressure of the pandemic. So there are definitely people I've spoken with that fell behind on rent during the pandemic and are kind of feeling, you know, like they've been behind, they're trying to catch up. And then you're also just hearing a lot about inflation that everyone's dealing with. It's like, God, the rent is going up in addition to gas, in addition to food. And some people are basically just saying like, this is too much. It's reached a point that it's really unsustainable. It does feel like right now that a lot of people are looking at even prices for the sale of homes and saying, I don't see I'm going to be able to buy a house anytime soon. And they're thinking themselves as longtime renters. Is that is that part of this? Yeah. Or, I mean, there's even talk about like perma renters. <laughs> like, will I ever be able to afford a house? I mean, I'm in my 30s in the Bay Area. That's definitely something I think about. And there's also research to back that up, like UC Berkeley and others have looked at this issue of in the past, you know, if you're middle class in particular, it's like eventually at some point you get out of the rental market by buying your first place. But those kind of links in the chain aren't functioning that way anymore because all during the pandemic, we've seen kind of record home prices and charts that show it's now much more expensive to own than to continue renting, even if the rents are pretty high. So that's another of many factors kind of fueling all of this. Before we get to Antioch, can you kind of set the landscape for us in places around the state? What are the rules? I mean, are, are there any rules if a local place like Antioch doesn't want to control rent? 
Yeah, so there's one very important state law. It's AB 1482 for any housing wonks out there. And just a couple years ago, that was kind of a landmark that set this new bar. It was kind of billed as an anti-price gouging rule at the time that said you can't jack up rents more than 10% each year. So in a lot of communities where now the conversation is bubbling up to be like, okay, let's revisit rent control or other forms of tenant protections, you've got landlord groups in particular pushing back and saying, hey, we've already got this state law, so why are we having this additional conversation? But famously, California also has limits on how far you can go if you do want to regulate rent. Yes. So the big law there is Costa-Hawkins. It's a 1995 law that says um, basically anything built after that year, also single-family houses and condos, cannot be rent-controlled. There have been multiple attempts to try to overturn that at the state level, uh, most recently in 2020, actually. That failed about 60-40 when taken to California voters. But that still is sort of the, the prevailing law. So now when, again, this conversation is happening at the local level, you've got to work around those parameters. All right. Well, let's get to Antioch. Tell us about the fight there. Yeah, so this has been happening at least since early this year. I've been talking to tenants there and organizers that have been door knocking and trying to get a sense of what are the issues. And there's really sort of a a range of things that you'll hear about. Some of it is about living conditions. Like I've talked to folks who are dealing with roach infestations, leaking water, like appliances that don't work. And then you just hear about really, really high rent increases. Like one woman who spoke at the city council meeting this week talked about a 45 rent hike. So there's a range of concerns. And because of that, you've seen more and more tenants showing up at city council and advocating not just for rent control, but also other provisions for eviction limits and also anti-harassment measures, because there are some folks who say that it it becomes like a, a back and forth with the landlord. And again, obviously, landlord groups push back and say, hey, this is like a few bad actors that are ruining this for everyone. We don't need to overregulate the system. But as we saw on Tuesday, the city council, by a three to two vote, went ahead and sided with the tenants. So at least the rent portion of this is moving forward. And that three two vote really shows the split, right? Yes, definitely. And it was the mayor that ultimately was the tiebreaker and decided to vote for this. And he kind of cast it as, you know, the first of what will probably be several conversations to come in this realm. We'll still see what happens with evictions and with the anti-harassment issues. So it's going to be an ongoing conversation in a lot of communities, I think. So 3% a year, what does that exactly mean? What does that apply to? So again, given that state law I mentioned, Costa-Hawkins, this doesn't apply to single-family homes. This doesn't apply to condos. It applies to buildings built before 1995. So that's, you know, the vast majority of rentals in most cities. And the technical rule is either a flat 3% increases allowed per year or 60% of inflation, whichever is lower. We know inflation is really high right now. So that's why you're, you're kind of seeing cities also add that fine print language. That's also the language that was adopted earlier this year in Oakland and that voters will decide on this coming fall in Richmond. When you're talking about rents that are several thousand dollars a month, obviously 3% on its face might not sound like a lot, but that can still be upwards of 100, a couple hundred 
hundred bucks per month, depending where you are. And most renters are saying, you know, like that's sufficient, especially if things like gas, food, et cetera, are all going up. Landlords will also say, hey, we're dealing with inflation too. I do think one interesting point that was brought up one of these city council meetings was just that the the renters contend like, hey, you know what, if you're the property manager, your mortgage doesn't go up 3% or 10% every year unless you have an adjustable rate mortgage. You're hearing much more folks say like, let's step back and look at whether this is really fair. And again, whether it's sustainable with prices just kind of going up and up and up. All right, Lauren, I want to ask you about the arguments for and against in Antioch and, and other places. But first, let's take a quick break on Fifth and Mission. We'll be right back. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bullwood, joined by Chronicle Housing and Housing Crisis reporter Lauren Hepler. We're talking about a new push for rent protections in cities around the Bay Area. Lauren, let's talk about the arguments for and against. First, for people that are arguing for these protections, why are they saying it's needed? The main one is just that it's kind of an economic necessity at this point. We know that prices have been rising for a long time now in the Bay Area, and folks are saying like it just has not kept up with wages. You're just going to end up with more and more folks who are completely priced out of the rental market. Obviously, the ultimate fear being that you're ultimately contributing to the homelessness crisis. So they argue that rent control is a good way to accomplish that. You're going to keep people in their homes, less displacement, less folks potentially on the street. And what about the other side? They have been pretty vocal in this debate. What do they say? Definitely. The the main thing you'll hear is kind of attempts to draw a line between big corporate landlords and small mom and pops, folks who are saying, you know, landlords need to be able to raise prices each year if they've got to fund like big renovations or if there's other costs that go up over time. Or just a lot of folks will say, you know, the market sets the price. If they can charge more in a fair market, they should be able to do that and kind of the financial returns that someone's entitled to. I imagine that when sometimes property owners say, you're going to put me out of business, I'm not going to be able to afford to be in this business. Some of the rental folks, some of the advocates might say, fine. Yeah, that's been actually a big point of contention during the pandemic. A lot of the landlord groups are saying, hey, we've got folks that are threatening to sell. And if they sell, what if they sell to these corporate landlords who are even less attached to the community or, you know, have potentially less skin in the game? And I think one other interesting point that we have to see how this bears out, it's like a little too soon to tell, but one other potential consequence that's been raised by property owner groups is, you know what the ultimate impact of this might be, is that landlords are going to get stricter about how they're screening for tenants. They're going to be making sure that someone is making three times the monthly rent. They're going to ask for higher credit scores, all just to attempt to kind of like minimize the financial risk. So what is the upshot there? Right. Leaving a property vacant is another one. So it all becomes this kind of like dog chasing its tail question of like, is there a perverse way that regulation in some ways makes all of this worse? Tenant groups will say that's overblown. Like history shows that, you know, landlords are still making money in San Francisco. People still want to live there. It all depends on, on kind of your vantage point. But it's, it's a different context for sure in these suburbs and much smaller places like Antioch. And is there anything we've learned from studies about ultimately what the impact of these losses? 
man, there is a, a whole like library's worth of studies on rent control. A lot of the sort of original economic studies from like the University of Chicago type crowd, a bit more financially conservative, say that it limits competition and ultimately raises prices. If you're not somebody who's lucky enough to be in a rent controlled unit, that means prices in the rest of the city are going to shoot way up. So kind of like the policy backfiring in a way. But there's been more and more research in recent years from groups who study displacement at UC Berkeley and elsewhere who say these protections are actually really important to keep people in their home at a time when we're seeing more and more folks pushed further and further out of pricey cities. So again, when you're talking about the suburbs, the question becomes like, man, how much further can people really be pushed? And I think that's why we're going to continue to see more of these debates at the local level. All right, well, let's talk about the state level. Governor Gavin Newsom, others have been talking a lot about the housing crisis. There's a lot of legislation. There's a lot of conversation about how to to get us through this crisis or at least limit the effects. Why not enact price caps at the state level? Why are we not seeing that? Yeah, so I mean, the, the big one, it sounds redundant, but this 1995 law, Costa-Hawkins, is extremely powerful, and basically that would have to be overturned in some form to do real, you know, a full statewide run at rent control. So you see things like the the 10% anti-price gouging thing I mentioned earlier. There's some tenant advocates who are wanting to revisit that, though that is very politically thorny. So instead, what we've seen in recent years is Newsom and state lawmakers focusing more on the building side of things, waiving some of the parking requirements and adding new funding for new housing to be built. But the tension that's going to continue to play out in the meantime is like, well, what do you do for renters who are struggling now, who can't wait for three years or five years or 10 years to potentially move into some of this new housing? We know tenant advocacy is strong in in San Francisco, but is there a thought that, that bringing this to more rural and suburban towns might change that at the state level? And that's definitely an interesting thought. And because we're seeing, you know, there's some tenant advocacy groups that you see a lot in Oakland, like ACE is a big one that are now active in a Contra Costa County or in some of the surrounding areas outside of Los Angeles. So the question is really like how much political power can those groups build in other places? And as a lot of folks told me, this really comes down to the makeup of individual city councils or in the case of Richmond, where we're going to have a ballot measure to look at rent control. It depends what voters decide and, you know, how the campaign finance shakes out there. So the dynamics are a little bit different in each place. And I think it depends how that jigsaw puzzle kind of comes together for whether or not there's momentum for change at the state level. I know you've talked to a lot of renters that are that are going through different levels of crisis. Tell me about those conversations. Are these folks getting more politically active? Are they showing up? And how much of their trouble has been related to the pandemic? Are you seeing a lot of people's circumstances change? Yeah, so I mean, I I am talking to a lot of folks who are showing up at city council meetings, and they range from like recent UC Berkeley college grads who are really dismayed to move back home to a city like Antioch and realize that their only option is to pay a thousand bucks a month for a really cramped bedroom that they're sharing with a bunch of roommates, or it goes up the chain to families. Like I spoke with a mother and three children in an unincorporated area of Alameda County, where there's another conversation going on about tenants' rights right now. 
And she, her rent actually went up a lot. In 2017, it was around $950 and now it's above $1,900. So a change of $1,000 per month in the span of five years. And she was saying, I'm a home health aide. Like, I just can't bear that. And yeah, she's got kids that have been home during the pandemic, doing remote school. So the pandemic has certainly had an impact on people's income and the ability of time they have to work to pay this increasing rent. So that's the kind of tension that I think you're starting to see boil over. And the question is, yeah, sort of what local policymakers decide to do with that. And also, we talk a lot about equity. How much of this movement is around the disparities that are seen across racial groups, across economic groups? It's huge. I mean, if you look at who turned out in Antioch last week, it was a majority of African-American and Latino families who were there speaking. There were a few white people and others, but you can really sort of see the diversity of the Bay Area in these conversations. And we do know from research that Black households and female-led households are the most likely to be evicted. So there are some pretty stark findings there that I think a lot of policymakers are sort of bearing in mind as they consider these things. But in the months to come, I'm just kind of curious to see like how much more broadly does this geography expand? It's also sort of bubbled up in Petaluma recently. In 2015, I actually covered a separate wave of this that was down more in like Silicon Valley. So I'm curious to see like, are any of those conversations going to get revived? Seems like it could go a lot of different ways. Lauren Hepler, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today. She's Chronicle housing reporter Lauren Hepler. To read her story about rent protections and the movement to enact more of them, go to sfchronicle.com. I want to thank Lauren for joining me. I also want to thank Gary Baca for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. <laughs>